0: What is up, everyone? El Nino Speaks is back with your wonderful host, Jose Nino. Today, the estimable Keith Preston is joining us again to discuss the 2022 midterm elections. Before we start, how are things going with you, Keith? Uh, Everything is fine. Good to be back on the program. Well, everyone expected a red wave to go down this past November 8th on the day of the midterm elections. However, it turns out that Republicans only took back the House with a smaller than expected margin, and Democrats now could potentially expand their lead in the Senate should the runoffs in Georgia go in their favor. What were your initial thoughts about the 2022 midterms? You mean the uh, predictions or the actual results? Results and then go into the predictions if you want.
1: Well, the conventional wisdom was that the Republicans would do quite well because they had every conceivable advantage you could have. Uh, first of all, the presidential party typically does not do well in midterm elections. That's a, a fairly well-established pattern. Also, uh, we have high inflation rates. We have high gas prices. We have economic instability. We have rising international tensions. Uh, We have rising crime rates, or at least that's the perception. We have the ongoing encroachment of the woke phenomena and all of that. So within that context, uh, it was widely thought that the Republicans really did have uh, just about every conceivable advantage you could expect to have in a midterm election. And however, when the Dobbs decision was handed down in June, uh, which overturned Roe v. Wade, many pundits thought that would probably weaken the republicans position because it would galvanize the pro-choice side who are overwhelmingly democrats and they would come out and and vote on moss against the republicans in retaliation for roe v wade being overturned and then interestingly as the election got closer uh, many pundits started to shy away from that prediction, saying, "Well, no, the polls actually look like the Republicans might actually have their red wave after all, and maybe the Dobbs issue had already passed and people had had forgotten about that." But what actually happened is that the Republicans didn't get their red wave, and as you were mentioning, they got control of the House only by a few seats. They may actually be at a greater disadvantage in the Senate, uh, depending on how some of the runoffs turn out. And of course, the big question is, why did that happen? One interesting phenomena that seems to have taken place, and there was an article in The Atlantic about this that was interesting, but they said the real winner in this election were moderates. And there does seem to be some um, evidence for that. It, It appears that on the Republican side, the more extreme a candidate was perceived to be, the less likely they were to win the election. Now, there were exceptions to that, but that seems to have been a fairly well-established pattern. You know, perceived extremist candidates did not do as well as perceived moderate candidates. For example, Doug Mastriano in- Yeah, uh, I was gonna say. <laughs> in Pennsylvania, he lost to a guy who had a stroke during the campaign and can't talk anymore. Uh, so, yeah, that's one example. Also, the, I think there's still some disputes going on about the Kerry Lake election in uh, Arizona, but it appears that she is not going to win that. Herschel Walker is coming up for a runoff election, but it seems like the hardcore MAGA or Stop the Steal people did not do as well as people who had a, a more moderate image or a more mainstream image. For example, DeSantis in Florida over, uh, won by a landslide. And of course, that was a gubernatorial position, not a congressional position. But the same principle seems to apply in the elections across the spectrum. Uh, another example uh, was Tudor Dixon in Michigan. Uh, she lost to Gretchen Whitmer, who was a, you know, a major villainous to the right so but she was perceived as being an anti-abortion extremist. So it looks like that extremism was not or perceived extremism was not a sellable product in this election. On the Democratic side, I think it's more of a, a, a mixed bag. You, you see some progressive Democrats that got elected to certain things, but you also see a preference for for moderate Democrats in many instances as well. Like I know here in Virginia. The Democrats that did the best were the moderates in Congress. For example, Abigail Spanberger got reelected, and we didn't see quite as many AOCs and and people like that getting uh, elected this time around. Now, the question is, why did it turn out this way? Do people just not care about inflation? Do they care more about abortion rights? Uh, Exit polls showed that the main issues people were interested in, uh, the two main issues were inflation and abortion. And- the anti-inflation vote tended to go to the Republicans. The, the people who, for whom abortion was their primary issue were primarily pro-choice people, so their vote went to the Democrats. I think, though, that one thing that a lot of commentators have missed that I have noticed, and this is something I thought would eventually happen for a while, is that, of course, we all know how the electoral system tends to be broken down into the red and the blue. We have the red Republicans and the red states, which are conservatives. And we have the blue Democrats and the blue states, which are liberals. But it seems like in this election, a new political tribe emerged. And that's what I would call the purple tribe. And that is people who are not really fully in the blue camp and not really fully in the red camp and who also reject perceived extremism. Uh, That is, they prefer pragmatism over ideology. And they tended to reject candidates that were perceived of uh as too extreme. What I mean by this is that if we look at public opinion polls right now, like where do Americans stand on issues, you know, the kind of public opinion polls that are taken by reputable polling groups like Pew Research Center or like Gallup or some of those. Uh, What we tend to find is that at present, there's something of at least a plurality, if not a a majority, of Americans who have what I would say are on economic issues, either moderately reformist or moderately populist or moderately social democratic economic views, which means that they would be people who, on one hand, they might be okay with raising the minimum wage. They might be okay with universal health care. They might be okay with trade or labor protection, but they don't want socialism or communism. They don't want to abolish business. They don't want to abolish the market. So these aren't Bernie Sanders people, per se, or or further left. You know, there may be kind of more in the, uh, the old school farm and labor or maybe New Deal Democrat type of tradition. There seems to be a plurality of Americans or even a majority of Americans who favor economic policies of that type. And on the social issues, it seems that there's a similar group that is more moderately libertarian in the sense that they're okay with marijuana legalization. They're okay with gay marriage. They may be moderately pro choice on abortion, but they don't want zero regulation of abortion. They don't want late term abortion. They may be Uh, moderately pro-Second Amendment, but they don't want zero regulation of guns. Uh, and, and then they reject more extreme views. They reject ideas like totally opening the borders and not having any controls on immigration whatsoever or defunding the police and, and, and things that are considered way out on the margins like that so this purple tribe that i'm describing now those are their characteristics i would say moderately populist reformist maybe social democratic economic views moderately libertarian social views but pragmatic and rejecting extremes and i know prior to the election joel who's a leading social scientist he had an article where he said well the real conflict in america is not between the the liberals and conservatives. It's between moderates or or between pragmatists and extremists. And I do think that that analysis was borne out by the results of some of these elections, because what we saw is that, like I said, fairly people who were perceived, you know, justly or not, whether they were if they were perceived as extreme, They tended to not do as well as candidates that tended to have a more moderate image. And I think that that reflects this purple tribe, uh, expressing its preferences. You know, we saw that in the referendums, not in the electoral patterns for parties and candidates, but also in the referendums. You know, we saw that the moderately pro-choice, Moderately pro marijuana legalization. You know, those kinds of viewpoints tended to do well in the referendums, except in very conservative states, like, say, the Dakotas or somewhere like that. On the other hand, uh, we don't see a lot of popularity uh, being expressed for extreme viewpoints like totally open borders, like defunding the police. And the uh, another issue, I think, is the fact that in this election, we had a lot of young people voting. The youth vote was very significant. And for the first time, we had some Gen Z people voting. We had the late millennials voting. And public opinion polls show that people from that generation tend to have viewpoints that are fairly similar to those of what I call this nebulous purple tribe that. You know, has a fairly pragmatic outlook, doesn't like extremism, has a, you know, a moderately libertarian social outlook, a moderately reformist economic outlook. And I think that the youth vote really, I think, was very significant in many ways, particularly young women. Now, young women seem to come out in an unusually high uh, number, uh, probably over the abortion issue, but also because, you know, they, they represent the wider value. Uh, system of their own generation. So we're seeing something of a shift, I think, in US politics. And it may be that this is the beginning of a uh, situation where the red and the blue are not entirely dominant, that there's going to be this purple middle that's going to increasingly be competitive as well. And then different you know parties are going to have to cater to that to some degree which means in certain circumstances they have, may have to moderate some of their policies or rhetoric or the language or the candidates that were running and, and things of that nature
0: That's pretty interesting the especially the case of Doug Mastriano, who ran against Josh Shapiro in Pennsylvania cuz the guy was running like a, as a hardcore evangelical in a state where there's like hardly any constituency for that. Some of these candidates were bizarre. What do you think um, explains why somebody like Dr. Oz lost? Because he actually has like some pretty centrist positions compared to some of the Republican candidates. Well, in his case, I think the fact that he's not
1: really from Pennsylvania has something to do with it, that he's actually from New Jersey. You know, I think he has a residence residence you know, like a part time residence in, uh in, in Pennsylvania. So he he was claiming he's from Pennsylvania. I think that he came across to a lot of voters in Pennsylvania as something of a entertainment industry elitist. You know, they thought of him as this guy that sells quack, you know, medical cures on TV and things like that. Uh, you know, he, I think he had an image problem. In other words, you know, I, I think that he didn't seem genuine to a lot of people. He, he was viewed as uh, to a lot of voters as just sort of a, an interloper, you know, somebody who's trying to capitalize on, on Trump's success. You know, somebody who looks at it like, OK, well, Trump was a TV personality and he got elected president. So now I'll run for the Senate and see what happens. And I, and I don't think people were very impressed by that.
0: That's kind of my vague impression as well. Now, as far as winners of the 2022 midterms are concerned, you argue for example, that it's this so-called purple tribe. And do you see any other people that you think won in this election as well? And who would you say were the biggest losers as well?
1: The biggest losers seem to be the ones that really pushed the stop the steal line. You know, the ones who claim that the 2020 presidential election was stolen. I think that the candidates that ran with that being one of their primary issues did not seem to do very well at all. Uh, And I think a big reason for that is, number one, a lot of Americans just don't believe that. They don't think the election was stolen or if it was, they don't care because they look at it like, well, it's over and done with. And Biden has already been the president for over two years and there's other things to worry about. So I, I just don't think that was a winning formula. That seemed to be an unpopular viewpoint people running on that kind of platform. One thing that was interesting is that the anti-crime rhetoric of the Republicans, a lot of Republicans did not seem to be particularly successful either. And I think there are several reasons for that. One is that there's a lot of people that when they hear Republicans say they want to get tough on crime, well, what that means to them is no-knock raids, civil asset forfeiture, police brutality, mandatory minimums, you know, things that we had riots over just a couple of years ago. So I think that the, at the very least, the law and order tough on crime perspective now has to share space in in among popular opinion with uh, advocacy of criminal justice reform and and things like that. Uh, Also, the There, there, statistically, there has been an increase in crime in the last few years. I don't know that a lot of people attribute that to leniency when it comes to criminals as much as just the impact of the pandemic and the related economic effects and social dislocations associated with that. Uh, Also, the increases in crime have only occurred in select locations. They tend to have happened Mostly in uh, larger cities, and, and you know, and so if you're not if you're not in an area where this is a, a primary area of concern, if you don't live in in say Philadelphia, you don't live in Chicago, or you don't live in New York, you don't live in San Francisco, or you don't live in Seattle, it's it's not it's just not that big of an issue one way or the other. You know, it's not like the crime wave of the 1980s. It's 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 not really on that level. So Republican rhetoric on that issue seems to have failed. One thing that I think the Republicans did wrong was they ran a mostly negative campaign. In fact, I think that was Mitch McConnell's original strategy, his original strategy back early this year before the Dobbs decision was, we're not going to run on any policies or issues. We're just going to attack the Democrats. You know, we're just going to say, look at what they've done. You know, we've got the worst inflation of 40 years. Crime rates are going up. We've got rising international tensions with the the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We've got uh, high gas prices and and all of these other problems. You know, we've got this woke stuff encroaching into schools or, or whatever. So, I think the Republicans, a lot of them ran on a purely negative campaign. We don't like the Democrats, but they didn't really have any alternative vision. They didn't really explain what it is they plan to do to address any of these problems. Meanwhile, interestingly, the Democrats seem to, at least in the last few months or even weeks leading up to the election, they seem to be more successful at putting together a positive program or at least positive, you know, depending on the audience you're trying to reach in the sense that Biden came out with his student loan debt forgiveness thing. So of course that motivated younger people to come out and vote for that. Biden said he was going to grant amnesty to marijuana offenders. So, you know, that side, you know, people for whom that's an issue that they came out to vote for that. And and there was a number of other things like that, a number of uh, bits of legislation that the uh, Democrats were successful in passing in Congress. So I think the Democrats were able to present a better image of being the group that can actually get legislation passed or actually has a plan for addressing particular issues, whereas the Republicans tended to be more negative. They tended to be like, you know, why do you want to vote for the Democrats? We have the worst inflation since Jimmy Carter, you know, that that kind of a that kind of a line just does it doesn't seem to sell, uh, I think, possibly a reason for that is that a lot of Americans may just be burned out on negativity. Uh, you know, given the uh, impact of the of the pandemic, given the riots of 2020, given January 6th, given the entrenchment of the culture war between the red and the blue, uh, like I said, you know, we've got this purple tribe that I think is emerging, and one of the characteristics of the purple tribe is, you know, they're just over all this negativity. They're you know, so they look at it like who has a positive program, who, who has actually gotten something done lately. Um, where now that now the Democrats. Program was not all positive. I mean, I think that one thing they did was they appealed to a lot of hysteria uh, over Trump and and over January sixth. You know, one of the one of their big lines, rhetorical campaigns, was that you know democracy is in danger. You know, we've got to fight Trumpian fascism, which you know, in, in my view, is a, a wild exaggeration. But it's uh, for people who believe that, that's a powerful motivating factor. Uh, so I think they did manage to get some people to come out on. Uh, on the basis of that rhetoric as well. I think, you know, whatever one thinks about January 6th and then the January 6th committee and all that the Democrats in collusion with the media have been successful, I think partially at hammering away at the Republicans and presenting them as fascists and dangerous to democracy or whatever. And in part, that's probably why some of the Republican candidates who were perceived of as being more extreme did lose in their bid. I don't think that was the only reason they lost, but I think that uh, that probably did play a role.
0: Are there any other issues that you believe the Republicans campaigned on that blew up in their face in this midterm? And also, I would add another question to that as well. Do you think that Republicans that continue to rail against marijuana legalization are shooting themselves in the foot as well?
1: Yeah. Well, I definitely think that by opposing marijuana legalization, they're shooting themselves in the foot. I mean, the evidence shows that something like 70 percent of Americans now are in favor of marijuana legalization. And taking this kind of, you know, defend the drug war to the death (laughs) type of stance that some, not all, but some Republicans take, I I think is self-defeating electorally. Although it may be that there's among their particular constituencies, I mean, among the say the hardcore evangelicals or among older people's say maybe that is a sellable line, but it's not marketable to the general public. No. So that may be a liability. You know, most marijuana reform referendums, for example, that are done by popular vote pass. They didn't pass in a few deep red states this time. They didn't pass in the Dakotas and Arkansas and places like that. Although I think that may change over time as well. But yeah, I think being so intransigent on that issue, I think, is a liability for the Republicans for the most part, at least outside of certain localities. But beyond that, though, you know, the, the traditional Republican line ever since the Reagan era has been this uh, fusionist viewpoint, which is they're hawkish on foreign policy, uh, tax cuts and deregulation on economic issues and social conservatism. And Trump kind of exploded that in a way by veering back to, you know, more of a an old, old right type of position where the Republicans were more tra- into trade protectionism and less socially conservative, but more bigger on immigration restriction and also more isolationist on foreign policy. Although Trump hasn't really towed that line to the limit. I mean, he's kind of vacillated on on quite a few things. I mean, most of the time, Trump pretty much governed like a normal Republican. So there is that issue. But I just don't think that the traditional Republican positions are that popular in today's world. For instance, when it comes to economic issues right now, the idea that, well, what's really wrong with the world is that corporations pay too much taxes and, and business is too tightly regulated. You know that's not really a sellable product. When you see companies like, say, Amazon and and Facebook and and, and all these tech uh, conglomerates, you see that they have almost unlimited power. And and Jeff Bezos pays practically no taxes. You know, it's uh, you know the, the you know the idea that like you know somebody like. Jeff Bezos is being oppressed by taxes and government regulation is just not something that people take seriously. Also, social conservatism is becoming less popular. For example, we see that church attendance is declining. Religiosity, overt religiosity, is declining, particularly among younger people. You know, more people are are becoming more. I guess you could say liberal in their or at least libertarian in a lot of their social views about a wide cross section of things, you know, gay marriage and a racial marriage, interreligious marriage in ways that we didn't always find in in past times. And then on foreign policy, the interesting thing there is that the Republicans have managed to outhawk the Democrats. I mean, I mean, nowadays, if you're if you're, say, a, a Russia, Ukraine hawk, you need to be a Democrat. So the traditional uh, Republican image of being the ones who are strong on national security, I I don't think that really worked for them very well either. And even on the crime issue, uh, even on the crime issue, I mean, Biden uh, gave a speech a while back where he was saying, you know, forget this defund the police nonsense. We've got to fund the police. You know, he took a law and order Democrat viewpoint. So it was kind of hard for the Republicans to seriously outflank that as well. You know, one, one thing the Republican side likes to make a big to-do about when it comes to the crime issue are these progressive prosecutors. Like in some localities, you have these individuals who are fairly leftward leaning, uh, who've been elected district attorney, and then they will implement policies like eliminating cash bail or not prosecuting low-level offenses, or or in some cases, seemingly fairly serious offenses. But... Uh, if you're not a resident of those localities, it, it doesn't really matter that much to you. People for whom crime, you know, being tough on crime is their primary issue are, are usually Republicans anyway. And people who are more on the middle, uh, I don't know that they think that, say, what Larry Krasner does in Philadelphia or what Chessa Bodine was doing in the Bay Area or what Alvin Bragg is doing in New York or what Kim Fox is doing in Chicago, I don't think that that's something they see as being their problem, as long as they don't live in those places. And most of those places are majority Democratic anyway, and DAs, whether you like their policies or not, are elected officials. They're locally elected officials, so they can always be voted out if they go too far in any particular direction. So I don't I, – for a lot of reasons, I think the Republicans failed when they, when they uh, tried to work the crime issue. It didn't seem to fly very well.
0: Yeah, I'm getting the impression that Republicans are – if they continue this way, they will become – a de facto regional party, if you will, and that does not augur well for them because when you when you factor in like the changing non-white voter demographics and the way white college educated voters are quickly drifting to the democratic aisle, do you see the g o p gradually becoming less powerful at the national level and just being relegated? to regional party status at best? Well,
1: I've gone back and forth on that. Uh, For a long time, I held to the view that was developed back in the early 2000s by uh, uh, John Judas and uh, Rye Texiera. Uh, They wrote a book, a well-known book, called uh, The Emerging Democratic Majority and their argument was that as American society continues to diversify demographically, as we experience cultural and generational change, as economic and technological changes impact society, that all of those trends tend to favor the Democrats. Uh, and that book, I think, was published in 2004. And the Obama uh, elections, you know, the two Obama elections, seemed to vindicate that a bit. Uh, Rick Perlstein actually wrote a, an article for The Nation uh, some years ago, uh, arguing against their, their thesis, saying that over time, it's quite possible that the Republicans could absorb uh, a greater number of people from, people from population groups that are now considered minorities. And the prototype or precedent that he cited for that was white ethnics. Uh, you know, there was a time in American history where Italians Irish, Poles, Czechs, uh, at one point even Germans were considered uh, a a non-white or they were considered a a minority. Uh, And that's not really the case. And the more assimilated some of those uh, nationalities have become in mainstream American society, the more you started to see Some of them voting Republican in large number. In fact, they uh, what they call sociologists used to call these the white ethnics, Uh, and they were a big part of the Nixon uh, uh, base. They were a big part of the Reagan coalition. And Rick Perlstein argued, well, it's also possible that the Republicans could start to attract more conservative minorities. They could attract more conservative blacks, more conservative Hispanics, Asians, and and others, as well as gays and women and you know uh, whatever. And there is some evidence that Republicans have gained among some of the traditional you know, recognized minority groups. But for the most part, it looks like, based on what happened in this election, that the original thesis by Judas and Teixeira Actually, stands that the, these demographic and cultural and generational changes we're seeing do tend to favor the Democrats. I think, in part, because, like you were saying, the Republicans just seem to be intransient about a lot of things. Uh, the Republicans seem to, you know, be, you know, to to use the language of the left, the party of old white rural Americans, or whatever. I think that's true to some degree. And that doesn't bode well for their electoral future. And I do think that, yeah, it's quite possible that in the future, the Democrats will be a dominant party at the national level. And while the Republicans might be competitive in the sense that they'll still have two, you know, every state will still have two, uh, two senators in the Senate and we will still have a seemingly for a while a Republican dominated Supreme Court. Uh, And there'll be, of course, there'll be some states that have Republican governors and legislatures. Uh, It does seem increasingly that the the Republicans, or at least the the very socially conservative Republicans, to be sure, are becoming more of a regional party. They're becoming more dominant, say, in Texas and the Dakotas and the Deep South, you know, the upper north, the landlocked areas of the upper Northwest and the Deep South. Those seem to be the Republican strongholds. It seems like the Rust Belt, is increasingly becoming you know up for grabs, and even the rural Midwest, you know, even the mid, even places like Kansas. It seems like though in Missouri, it seems like those are, are um, flipping in ways as well. Uh, as is Nevada. I mean, I mean, recently even the Mormon Church came out in favor of gay marriage. You know, it, it's uh, so I do think that the the sectors among the Republicans that want to push say the drug war or opposition to gay marriage and things like that to the nth degree, I do think they're fighting an uphill battle. And that gets back to what I was saying earlier about the purple tribe. Uh, In some ways, I've seen in recent times the focus of the culture war shifting to where it's less the red versus the blue and more the purple versus the blue in the sense that um, the more extreme the woke, the extreme woke people become and the more influence they gain in institutions like, say, schools or something like that, the more that there's a pushback, not from the right, but from the center. So I've seen that in Virginia, for instance. Um, You know, we we see people in Virginia who are generally maybe centrist Democrats or moderate Republicans saying, look, you know, I, I don't have a problem with gay marriage, you know, but we can't have guys who claim to be girls on girls' sports teams and and using women's restrooms and things like that. You know, it's uh, where we can't have children having uh, transgender surgery and things of that nature. You know, I think that that seems to be where the culture war is headed. Uh, You you see that in uh, some of the blue areas of the country, like there's a guy named Michael Schellenberger, who's a journalist, he's in San Francisco, and he writes a lot about the uh, social dysfunctions you find in the San Francisco area and other areas of California with huge uh, homeless populations, pervasiveness of, of open-air drug markets. where We have people leaving syringes on the sidewalk. And, and a lot of the opposition to that comes not from the hard right. I mean, there is no hard right in some of those places. A lot of it comes more from the center. You know, people who say, look, you know, we're fine with gay marriage. We're fine with moderately pro-choice abortion policies. You know, if people want to, if, an, if adults want to be transitioned transgender fine we can legalize marijuana fine but you know when we start seeing five-year-olds coming out transgender and having surgery and you know you know we see like uh junk you know masses of junkies camped out on the sidewalk and leaving uh dirty syringes around and things like that this is just way over the line so that seems to be a, a, a where the focus of the culture war in terms of how it's shifting it's shifting more to the purple versus the blue i think with the uh With the red still be present, obviously, but I do think that the red seems to become more of a regional phenomenon over time. You know, and of course, the blue seems to become more extreme over time in the institutions and enclaves where it's dominant. And that leaves the purple who who say, well, no, we're not right wing Republicans, but, you know, we're not into this hyper woke stuff either.
0: That kind of reminds me of that Harper's letter or whatever that David Frum and a number of other notable liberal figures wrote against like cancel culture. I think that dynamic is going to be interesting because I do believe that wokeism is going to get some pushback from certain factions of the American ruling class.
1: Yeah. Well, we're already seeing that to some degree. I mean, we see uh, Elon Musk buying out Twitter, for example. So, yeah. Well, that letter that you're talking about was signed by not only people like David Frome, who were neocons, but also Noam Chomsky. He's he's like the leading uh, intellectual of the left. So, uh, yeah, I've seen more and more of that on the left lately. I've I've seen a lot of left factions splinter into woke and anti-woke or you know like moderate woke and extreme woke and that kind of thing, so it does seem to be causing a lot of conflict on the left and uh, but I think even more importantly the the center a lot of the center is very opposed to a lot of the excesses they see coming from the woke crowd as well you know for instance, you know a lot a lot of parents you know who were say moderate Democrats, they're not going to be that enamored of you know their daughters. Being on wrestling teams with guys, you know, where they're 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 fighting guys in wrestling matches or something like that, you know, or or racing guys on track teams or or sharing uh, dressing rooms and shower rooms with guys, you know. I mean, a lot of parents would be concerned about say, safety issues or fairness in sports competitions and things like that. And again, you know, some of the issues you see now with uh, the transgender uh, treatment for. Uh, minors, I think that that's that's a real controversy as well. In fact, it seems to almost be eclipsing the the abortion controversy. You know, it's almost like that's even become more of a hot button of issue than abortion, in spite of the Dobbs decision. Uh, so it's uh, yeah, I, I do I do think there's a pushback from the center against the woke crowd as well.
0: Now, for the topic of political polarization, it seems to some degree that it is baked into the cake. Outside of a handful of gubernatorial races, people don't really take it split anymore. Is polarization ingrained in the American body politic these days?
1: Yeah, I think that the one issue there is that politics have become increasingly national and the parties have become increasingly ideologically uniform. Like when I was younger, when I first started following politics in the 70s and 80s, in both parties, you had liberals, conservatives, and moderates. You know, in the Democratic Party, for example, in the 70s and 80s, you had everything from unreconstructed Southern segregationists to supported guys like George Wallace, all the way over to liberal McGovernites who were practically pacifists or uh, new leftists. And the Republicans were like that as well. You, You had, you know, your john birch society type republicans and then you had your very liberal you know john anderson type republicans so you don't find that anymore you know you you, they republicans and democrats both tend to be more party line oriented and that plays out at both the national and local level you know it's um And when people vote, it's almost like they're voting with their tribe or their religion or something. Like, if you look at how an election works in a country like, um, I don't know, Iraq, for example, there, the Sunni are going to vote for Sunni, the Shia are going to vote for Shia, the Kurds are going to vote for Kurds, and they're going to vote for people from their own clan or tribe or whatever within each of those frameworks. And that's just how it works. I I remember back when the Iraq war started back in 2003, you know, I, I knew... Republicans or pro neocons or whatever who said that, uh, uh, yeah, isn't this great? We're bringing democracy to Iraq. And I said, well, if you have democracy in Iraq, you're going to get a, a Shia government that's going to be pro-Iranian, and that's exactly what happened. And that's more and more that's how American politics seem to be. You don't see that many people who vote for say a split ticket. You know, like like um, I know we had an election here in Virginia back in the early nineties. And the candidate who was running, uh, this, this was in, uh, this was back when Republicans were doing very well. In uh, It was either in 93 or 94. It may have been 94, the year that Republicans swept the midterms. But I think it was the year before. I think it was in 93. But um, we had a, a conservative Republican who was elected governor of Virginia. His name was George Allen. He was the son of the former uh, football coach, George Allen. And he eventually went on to be a senator. And then we had a Republican attorney general elected in that same election, this guy named Jim Gilmore. But the Democrats actually won the lieutenant governor position. And the reason for that was there was a guy running for lieutenant governor on the Republican side named Mike Ferris, who was perceived as a right wing religious extremist. He was hardcore religious right. He was associated with some of these conservative evangelical private colleges and, and places like that. And many people thought he was a dangerous you know, theocrat or whatever, rightfully or wrongfully. But that's how he was perceived. Uh, so he lost. But the, even though Republicans generally did well, you don't see as much split ticket voting like that you know most people don't just vote for a republican here or democrat there you know it's either i'm a democrat or i'm a republican and i think that's true even of people with more moderate views if they're you know they are they're either moderately democratic and they you know they prefer more moderate candidates or they're moderately republican or if prefer more moderate candidates but cross-party voting does not seem to be that common uh, whether the emergence of this purple tribe I'm talking about will change that or not, I, I'm not sure about. It could be that there would just be a left wing of the purple tribe and a right wing of the purple tribe who would still stick with their party affiliations or not. It, it could go either way.
0: Who would you say are some of the most notable figures of these respective wings of the purple tribe? Hmm, that's hard to say
1: because the the Purple tribe hasn't really coalesced as anything organized or, you know, identifiable beyond just these nebulous patterns. You know, there's I mean, there's not that many people out there saying you know both both purple, no matter who or or something (laughs) like that. Uh, So it's not really an organized movement. It's just sort of a trend that that people are that you can observe. I would say on the Democratic side. Somebody like Abigail Spanberger, who is was a congresswoman here in Virginia, she I, I, I live in Virginia. That's why I use her as an example. But I know a lot of people who are Democrats who, who love her. Yeah. You, know, you know, I have friends who are, say, moderate to liberal Democrats. You know, who have very liberal views on a lot of things, you know, civil rights, gay rights, abortion, all these kinds of things. But they don't like people like the squad. You know, they think that AOC is a Kardashian wannabe and a bimbo. And that's not the kind of Democrat they want to vote for. You know, they want somebody that has a more moderate image. They like well, they like people like Senator Mark Warner or somebody like that. Uh or or like tim ryan that was defeated by jd vance you know that that kind of moderate uh democrat whereas on the republican side glenn youngkin uh, i think is a good example of a purple republican Uh, glenn youngkin he also is the is the governor of virginia now and he virginia is a very purple state uh and and it's interesting because in virginia you have some very deep red zones. You have parts of rural Virginia, particularly in the western part of the state, that are as red as Mississippi or or Louisiana or somewhere like that. Uh, and then you have places that are as blue as the West Coast cities in California, like Santa Cruz or or, or somewhere like Berkeley. You know? so. And then in the Northern Virginia suburbs, you've got this, you know, this hard blue. Uh, uh, well, or you've got this. Yeah. Yeah. Northern Virginia suburbs, you have all these federal workers and all of that. So they've really turned the state blue. But. Um, Glenn Youngkin is a Republican. He, he was elected as the to be the governor. And one thing that distinguished him is that he wasn't really a MAGA candidate. You know, he was elected in twenty twenty one. But he wasn't really a MAGA candidate. He was more of a moderate Republican. I mean, he didn't denounce the MAGA people. He didn't say, oh, well, you know, I, I don't like Donald Trump. Don't, don't associate me with him. He wasn't that. But he did play down that. You know, he did run as a more conventional, you know, center right Republican. Um, and he emphasized some issues that conservatives are motivated by. For example, he's Catholic. He's on the pro life side in the abortion issue. Uh but one thing he made an issue of was parents' rights when it comes to education because we've had a lot of issues with, you know, parents being concerned about the school curriculums becoming excessively woke and teaching critically race, critical race theory and gender ideology and all this kind of stuff. And and the Democrats really blew it in that election because their candidate was a guy who had had been governor once before, uh, Terry McAuliffe. Um, And in Virginia, governors can only serve one term at a time, like if they they can run for reelection after they've been out for at least one term. But McAuliffe had actually served a term as governor and then Ralph Northam, also a Democrat, had followed him. And then McAuliffe was trying to come back in as a Democrat. Uh, But he lost uh, that election. And I think one thing that where he really blew it was in a debate when uh, the issue of education policy came up, he basically said, no, parents shouldn't have control over, over education. They should leave it up to the experts, meaning teachers and school administrations school administrators. And not that many parents are going to take kindly to that. Not many parents are going to take kindly to the idea, well, you should just shut up and let the experts decide what to teach your kids. I mean, a lot of parents are going to take that as a as an affront to, you know, their own um, ability to raise their own kids the way they want to and things like that. Uh, and, and you have Democrats. You have a lot of Democrats that have that kind of attitude. And that, I think, really damaged the Republicans in that election. And Lynn. Glenn Youngkin, who, like I said, he's a businessman. He's with the Carlisle Group. He's more of a conventional chamber of commerce type of center-right Republican. I mean, he's, he's somewhat socially conservative, not, not sh- stridently so. I mean, he's not Tom Cotton or somebody like that. But he's, uh, you know, he is more on the pro-life side and things of that nature. Um, but he was able to win for that reason.
0: Now, let's go to some of like the factionalism within the Republican Party, because one thing I notice in the wake of the midterms is growing commentary among establishment circles of the GOP and the conservative media ecosystem that Donald Trump needs to be ditched in 2024. Do you believe there will be a vigorous effort to scuttle Trump's 2024 election bid and what mechanisms will be used to to derail his campaign well that's been
1: going on for a while that's nothing new i mean my theory is that a lot of what was going on with the january 6 hearings was they they were trying to find a way to get rid of donald trump and possibly even criminally prosecute him so i don't and i think republicans and democrats have been involved in that so i think there's a wide cross-section of the ruling class that really wants to get rid of donald trump very badly but I think, though, because the Republicans, uh, well, because Trump did not win re-election, because of the J6 incident and the aftermath, because the Republicans have not done well in this past midterm elections, there do seem to be a lot of people on the Republican side who are saying, yeah, we've got to get past Trump. You know, he's, he's become a liability. I think that that is going to create a lot of conflict in the Republican Party. In fact, I, it, it may be that the Republican primaries in 2024 are more contentious than the election itself or, or just as contentious, because I think on the Republican side, from from what I can tell, the, the, the way it's lining up right now is that you've got these multiple factions. You've got the hardcore pro-Trump faction. You know, these are the people who think, you know, Donald Trump is like Jesus. He walks on water. You know, he's he's our man. Uh, you've got that. Trump will us to the death. But then you also have Mike Pence. Mike Pence now is more or less positioning himself as as anti-Trump, you know, saying, you know, look. I'm a conservative, but I'm a responsible conservative. I'm not. I don't do these reckless things like Trump does. You know, it's. Uh, I think Trump. I mean, I think uh, Pence will be very popular among the evangelical uh, sector of the Republicans. He he he's well loved among among them. You know, he's. I don't. I don't know if he's an evangelical personally or Catholic, but he's. I know he's popular with the the evangelicals and with the religious conservative generally. I guess. So I see him being more the man for that sector. Another one is, of course, DeSantis. I see the more populist right lining up behind him. That is people that are like, you know, yeah, I'm against woke and all this. I'm against Biden and all that. But, yeah, Trump's kind of overboard. You know, we need somebody like DeSantis who got things done in Florida. You know, I, I see that being another uh, line. I, I, those seem to be the big three right now. I could see others emerging Ted Cruz, I think, wants to be involved. You know, I think Josh Howley, he's coming out and saying he wants to reinvigorate the Republican Party is basically a NatCon, a national conservative party. So you might see a lot of these different kinds of uh, characters in the Republican primaries. In fact, I would not be surprised if you saw some real wild cards in the Republican primaries. Uh, I could each actually see Tulsi Gabbard entering the Republican primaries, uh, as a you know, a, a converting to and joining the Republican Party and entering the Republican primaries. I could see Christy Noll running in the Republican primary. She's a big heroine to the anti-lockdown uh, people. So yeah, there's going to be uh, some interesting conflicts going on within the Republican Party. And I think the, the Democrats are anticipating that. They're hoping that the Republicans are going to cannibalize each other. And that the, the Democrats are going to win by default because the Republicans are so disorganized and chaotic, although that leaves them with the question of, well, who's going to be their guy? You know, is 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 80 something, you know, President Alzheimer going to be the you know, going to run for reelection or not? You know, and and if he if not him, who, you know, is it going to be Kamala Harris? Is it going to be Pete Buttigieg? You know, they're more unpopular than than Biden, so they don't have a lot going on their side either.
0: Oh, no, interesting stuff all around. Now, doubling down on the DeSantis versus Trump rivalry that's emerging, there's clearly an interesting array of actors converging around DeSantis that span like the range of conservatism, Inc. flunkies to your typical neocons. And to me, it's becoming clear that DeSantis is their potential vehicle for getting back into prominence. Do you believe that if Trump is successfully dumped, that DeSantis would have better electoral prospects at the national level than Trump in 2024 and
1: beyond? Yeah, right now, polls actually show that DeSantis is veering ahead of Trump in terms of popularity among Republicans. And I think that the reason why is DeSantis is much better at projecting an image of competence than Trump. Uh, you know DeSantis is somebody who can say, "Look, in, in my state, I got policies done. I got this bill passed. I got that bill passed. I inter- I enacted this policy. Trump is more famous for making speeches and tweets and, and things like that, And there's an audience for that. There, there's an audience that loves that, but I, I don't know that. There's a whole lot of people increasingly who think that's really the, the most competent model of governance. And I think DeSantis has an advantage in the sense of being able to say, hey, I'm the competent Trump. You know, yeah, I, I have a lot of the same views, a lot of the same values as, as, as Trump, but I can actually get the job done without creating all these distractions by creating chaos on the Internet or inciting a riot at the Capitol or whatever. So that's a that's a very shrewd angle for, for
0: DeSantis to take. Do you think that DeSantis could cobble together the same coalition that Trump was able to do uh, do so like in 2016 and replicate that like in 2024 or any other hypothetical election in the future? I think he could. I don't think he's
1: going to attract the kind of loyalists to him personally that Trump was able to do. I mean, Trump was almost like a rock star. You know, he had uh, these diehard fans who would, you know, jump off a roof for him or something. DeSantis doesn't have that kind of following. But I do think he makes up for that by having an image of being you know, less over the top and, and more competent and able to get things done. And I think that that's going to be more appealing to more you know, moderate conservatives, conservatism, Inc., that, that crowd. But DeSantis is, is populist right leaning enough. He can lean into the populist sector as well. The question, I think, though, is whether that's sellable on a national level, uh, whether they can win a national election with that. I wouldn't count. I wouldn't rule it out. But I, I don't I don't know that it's necessarily a winning formula. What the Republicans are hoping for is that. Biden will be the new Jimmy Carter, that he'll be viewed as this unsuccessful, incompetent one-term president, and that someone like DeSantis or whomever will be their their new Ronald Reagan. That's, that's their goal, just like you have progressive Democrats that want a new FDR. But um, I, I think the, the big question is whether that is sellable within the context of American culture as it is today, as opposed to 1980. That I'm not quite as sure about. I think that whoever runs for president successfully in 2024 is going to have to get a lot of votes from this purple tribe that I'm talking about, which means they can't just play to their base of their party per se. They have to reach out into to the middle as well. You have a lot of people now who are moderates, independents, swing voters who are
0: saying, hey, what about what about us? Yeah, that makes sense. Absolutely. They can't really just focus on internet like issues that are very niche in nature you're gonna have to like talk to people about relevant stuff if you want to maintain political relevancy now on one final note foreign policy that's like something that i'm definitely really into and i've long argued that dc is a virtual uni party on that front save for like a handful of reps who challenge the U.S.'s imperial ambitions. Do you believe these midterms represent more of the same when it comes to foreign policy, or were there any new elected officials that could potentially stir the pot? Uh, I didn't
1: see that foreign policy played a very significant role in this election. I, I think that Americans, for the most part, just don't care about foreign policy. And uh, you know, unless they're worried about getting personally drafted into a war like in Vietnam or unless they're worried about being personally killed in a terrorist attack like after 9-11, barring something like that, I think foreign policy is just not that important to most Americans. So I didn't really see foreign policy playing a big role in this election. And I think you're right. The, the two parties more or less have the same view, certainly the leadership of the parties, you know, the leadership of the Republican Party, the leadership of the Democratic Party, have basically the same foreign policy views. Uh, I mean, there might be differences as far as some of the nuances. Uh, The Iran nuclear deal, for example, seems to be a a genuine issue of contention between the parties. But for the most part, you know, you you might have people on the Democratic side, like some of these squad people like Ilan Omar or Rashida Tlaib, or you have a few people on the Republican side, Rand Paul, kind of, sort of, Thomas Massey, Marjorie Taylor Greene, a few others, perhaps, who are more non-interventionist or something like that uh, in their foreign policy views. But I I don't know that there's much dissent at all on foreign policy, um, which is unfortunate because the situation with uh, Ukraine and Russia is serious. I mean, we're talking about... uh, a, uh, an indirect war that's going on between the United States and Russia, two, two nuclear armed powers. Yeah, so, so it is a very serious matter. But I, I think a lot of people just aren't conscious of that or aren't, aren't aware of that. You know, if it's not something that immediately impacts them in their daily life, or you know, where they, at least they don't see it as impacting them in their daily life, they are just not that worried about it.
0: Yeah, that's what I've, what I've gathered too. Like proxy, That's the benefit of a proxy conflict is that really only like the insanely autistic geopolitical observers are the ones that are paying attention to it and everybody else is just like asleep at the wheel and doesn't really care for that stuff and I think it's going to continue to be that way until like the US does get itself mired into like say like a full blown hot conflict with like the likes of China or some other near peer or peer competitor
1: Yeah, I I think that's the case. Uh, And I think that's probably the most serious issue out there, really. I mean, in in politics today, I think it's the most serious issue, but it's not one that most people seem to have any awareness of.
0: All right. I think this is a good place to close out at. Keith, thank you again for coming on to the show and let my audience know where they can keep up with your latest work. You can follow me at a website called attackthesystem.com
1: just like it sounds, attackthesystem.com. And then from there, you can find links to my social media, Twitter, Facebook, and all of that. And you can also find out how to purchase my books if you're interested in reading any of them.
0: All right. To my wonderful audience, thank you for your generous attention. And with that, El Nino has spoken.